Welcome back, listeners. I'm Robin Black. This is It's All About Healing Podcast. In today's episode, I will be interviewing Holland Hoskins. She has been a trial lawyer for over 30 years and is one of Colorado's leading litigators. And what made me reach out to Holland was I was actually watching an episode of Kids Behind Bars, and she was working on the Curtis Brooks case. I believe he was 15 when he was involved in a crime. And by the time he was 17, he was given a life sentence for a crime that he didn't commit. And it just, it absolutely moved me because they had worked on this case for 24 years. And I couldn't even begin to imagine what that's like for either party. So I actually, not only do I want to speak to Holland in regard to this case, but I also want to speak with Holland in regard to what goes on in the mind of a public defender. And it is my pleasure, and I am extremely honored to introduce you to Holland Hoskins. Holland, can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. When I graduated law school in Denver in 1992, and my career started as a public defender, and that's a job that I always wanted to do. And I was a public defender from 1993 to until about 2004, so for about 12 years. After that, I went into civil litigation and did complex medical malpractice for severely injured patients and wrongful death cases from 2004 until about 2019. And in 2019 is when I thought maybe I was going to retire early, but too many good cases kept coming my way and I didn't have the ability to say no. So I opened my own firm, Holland Law, and that's where I've been practicing um, since 2019. Okay. And so you said that you were a, a public defender, correct? Absolutely. I worked for the Colorado State Public Defender's Office for 12 years, which is an incredibly stressful job. Right. And I couldn't even begin to imagine how stressful that is. As you're sitting next to some of these defendants who have committed some gruesome acts, what what was that like? Sure. You, you know, the job you had, you, you didn't get to pick your cases. And at times, the caseloads were very high, around 120 cases. And you had all different types of clients. You had clients that you were for sure uh, that they were being wrongly charged and they were innocent, or you had clients that were property crimes, uh, and needed a second chance. And it was very difficult representing those clients. And then, as you mentioned, there's also going to be clients that, um, have been charged with very violent crimes, sex assault, homicide, and you are an incredibly busy public defender and you're sitting, you go to the jail and you're sitting in a small room uh, with some of these clients and that can be incredibly stressful as well. Uh, some of these clients can be mentally ill. I remember there was one client who was so mentally ill and was charged with multiple homicides. Uh, and a visceration of body parts, and the sheriff's 
found a kite or something, a warning that the inmate was going to put a pencil through my coworker's neck. Um, oh my so, goodness. Yeah. So, so you're dealing with all kinds of things. Um, and it, it's going to cause a little anxiety to say the least. I can only imagine. So what's actually going on through your mind during that? Like, was there a sense of fear every single time you went in or what was, what was it? What was that like? You know, it's not, it, it, not every single client was like that. The other, you know, you're going to, there's a lot of good people that do uh, bad things and there would be no fear. It was just empathy. And how can I, do the best I can to help this individual. It would be on the rare occasion that with some of the violent, mentally ill clients that you would be afraid. Uh, and, um, you know, that particular instance where I, I talked about a mentally ill client uh, that had threatened to, you know, stab you in the neck with a pencil. I, it, it's silly, but I remember kind of like practicing, you know, scrunching my neck down, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, all all while you're trying to go read the discovery and the police reports of some of the, you know, gruesome accusations. Uh, it it made it very, uh, interesting, uh, uh, and stressful for sure. (laughs) I bet. And while in court, what is it like, you know, to have the defendant's family, you know, they have to be falling apart, behind you and then also having the victim's family against you. And they're all, they're both sides are grieving. Like, what is that like when you're in the courtroom? You know, in my early days of my career, when I didn't have the experience and the confidence to know how to handle it, it felt incredibly isolating and overwhelming. Like you can't even imagine you know, that situation that you're responsible for your client's life. You have a caseload of over a hundred cases and yet you walk into the courtroom and the family has been calling and the family is there. So you're trying to navigate and comfort the family. And then you're also dealing with the other half of the courtroom, which are um, victims, families who have gone through, you know, extreme grief, suffering, and loss, and it all is just colliding into the courtroom. In the early years, I, I just, you'd keep your eyes down, look, look at the floor. You, you didn't want to look at the victims. You know, you have to do certain cross-examinations. Um, but as I gained more experience, I always learned it's best to try to go introduce yourself you know, apologize for their grief, loss, or sorrow, um, and that you have a job to do and attempt some, you know, restorative justice or at least some communication and respect, which always helped. Uh, But there were a few very stressful times with, um, uh, you know, drug case homicides or gang-related where, you know, the victims' families are all wearing T-shirts lined up in the hallway. I've been spit at just walking down the hallway oh, wow. um, with a defendant, you know, in custody going into the courtroom after a not guilty verdict on a particular case. I was told, don't go home. And my client, who I believed was innocent, and I walked, his house was shot up after the verdict. So... You know, a public defender is going to see and, uh, you know, see a lot of bad things. 
Oh my goodness. And then I, I, I that is, that is insane. And then you said that you have over a hundred caseloads. What is that like when you have to take that home? Like, how do you balance both of those? And just on an average day, what is that like balancing the two? Sure. It, it's incredibly difficult if at any one time you're, when I was a public defender, my, the number of cases would vary, but it can go from, you know, 90 cases to 120 cases. And there's just no way to do that job um, completely effectively at that caseload. And the immense pressure uh, causes anxiety. Um, it causes uh, you know, stress, insomnia, um, just the overwhelming um, stakes that are involved and that you're just constantly going, going, going. It, you don't even have time to process uh, one particular outcome on one case when, you know, if you've been in trial for three weeks, you have a hundred other clients who are clamoring to for your attention. And so it's, it's really difficult to keep a, a personal life balance uh, when you do a job like this. And what about coping with the grief yourself from dealing with different cases? What Were you ever able to actually grieve? You know, you just didn't have the time. Um, I know the Curtis Brooks case, uh, since it's uh, had the documentary on it and it's in the public record, um, after, you know, he was charged with felony murder when he was 15 years old and I had to go to trial where there was a confession on felony murder. There was not a lot of hope in defending that case. And he was sentenced to life without parole as a 17 year old. And when the judge read that verdict, his grandmother was in the court and was wailing. Um, and it, it, even though, we expected it to hear the guilty verdict and then the immediate life without parole sentence, which was mandatory for a child, was it was soul crushing that moment. Uh, and even up to three months later, I was completely depressed, uh, felt guilty, felt like I was part of the system that um, that was sentencing children to life without parole. And uh, I really contemplated uh, quitting the job. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I had, I had to get up and to do what I can to fight for the next client. You had a hundred other clients that were needing your help and your assistance. And it just, it did make you want to get better, but there wasn't a lot of time for self-care, for self-help to process um, the trauma that the lawyers are going through, that judges are going through, everyone in the judicial system is going through, not just the defendant, the defendant's family, and of course, the victim's family, uh, even law enforcement officers. It's it's very traumatic mentally. I, I can definitely imagine. And, and is there mental help in that sense? Like, do you guys have... Um scheduled psych evaluations? You know, when from 1993 to 2004 in Colorado, and Colorado State Public Defenders is one of the 
top public defender systems, um, there was no psych evaluations. There was no counselors or, or mental um, health support. Now, uh, I was on the Public Defender Commission recently, and it's the Colorado Public Defender System is so large that they do have uh, more tools. I don't think there's psych evaluations, but there are um, mental health counselors that the lawyers can go to, is, is my understanding now. But it's definitely needed, um, for sure, and for everyone involved in the criminal justice system. But the public defender... Uh, you, a lot of times the defendants, you're the only person that they may have, the only person that, you know, you're carrying all of their burdens. And also at the same time, you're the, you're the person that is going to uh, receive their anger, their resentment um, about the system. And so it, it, it is definitely a very difficult role. Right. I, I Yeah, I get that. And then I know... Speaking of which, with the anger, I know previously when we actually spoke about the Curtis Brook case, you stated that he cussed you out. And that was what's what, what I'm sorry, what was be what was to be expected from a 17 year old, right? Given a life sentence. But what exactly happened? Because was he um, did he actually commit it or what actually happened there? What what actually happened in the case? Yes. Sure. Uh the Curtis Brooks case, he was 15 years old. He had no criminal history. And it was in 1995. He had been assaulted by his mother and left to live on the streets. And so one night during a snowstorm, he was sheltering in a mall playing video games when he was approached by three juveniles. And these three kids had criminal prior criminal history for robbery and had actually stolen guns that day and committed several burglaries throughout the day. Well, you know, they collided with Curtis and told Curtis that they would give him a place to sleep if he would help them jack a car. And Curtis was handed a gun and was just told to fire a warning shot in the air outside in the parking lot when a man, an innocent young man, was leaving an ATM. And Curtis did what did what he was told and fired the warning shot in the air. And then unexpectedly, one of the three juveniles shot and killed the victim for his car. So he was charged with first-degree felony murder, and first-degree felony murder in Colorado was a mandatory life without parole sentence. And it's felony murder if you agree to help before, after, or during the commission of a felony. And he had confessed to this crime. Uh, And unfortunately, the ringleader, who was white, was 13 years old, could not could only be charged as a juvenile, and he only received a five-year sentence in the youth offender system. And despite no criminal history and not firing the fatal shot, Curtis, who is black, received no plea offers. And unfortunately, he was forced to trial, and there was a confession on felony murder. We did our best, but he was found guilty of first-degree felony murder. And after the verdict, I went back and talked to the jurors, and they were crying. They had no idea it was a mandatory life without parole sentence. Uh, So, yes, Curtis has always admitted his role. He has taken full responsibility, but a life without parole sentence for a child 
with no criminal history for not killing something without killing somebody is absolutely um, harsh, unjust, and cruel and unusual. And that's basically what the Supreme Court found in 2012, that mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles was unconstitutional. And so there was a, a somewhat of um, racial disparity involved there, too, it seems like. Absolutely, there was racial disparity. This this case occurred in Arapahoe County, which had uh, affluent um, white um, cities and a lot of the primary jurors. And then you had other predominantly um, indigent um, persons of color. And so in this particular case, the two white juveniles, even though they were the three juveniles who had prior criminal history, and uh, the one ringleader, white, only did five years. And then the other white juvenile who had done all the crimes earlier that day and had prior criminal history was the only one that got a plea bargain. And whereas the shooter juvenile who was black uh, was sentenced to life without parole and Curtis, who was black, who had minimal involvement, um, was sentenced to life without parole. And the district attorney's office uh, refused to negotiate. And then as I continued to help Curtis later on in his resentencing bid and clemency bid, the prosecutor refused to enter into plea negotiations even at that time in up until 2018. Wow. And what was Curtis like? you know, from the time he was 17, you know, when, when he was given that sentence to when he was, I believe, 41, when he was released, what, what was the difference there? Sure. Um, I first met him when he was 15 and he was immediately incarcerated in the jail waiting trial. He was, um, young, uh, full of bravado, acted like he didn't care about anything you know, impetuous, completely immature. And you could tell he was incredibly scared, but didn't want to show it. Mm. Um, And then to when he was 17 and sentenced, already being incarcerated for two years, obviously he took it out on me. I was the only person he could take it out on, you know, cussed me out, called me a public pretender. And, you know, it was all my fault that he was being sentenced to life without parole which was painful for me, but it was so understandable mm-hmm. as a ch- as a child who came from a horrific, abusive uh, childhood and then just received a life without parole sentence. And then we lost touch for a while, but when we reunited, um, when he needed my assistance in filing a petition for clemency. And when there was a possibility of him being resentenced, he was a completely different person. He had grown up. Um, He was remorseful. He had taught himself different languages. I assisted financially for him to take college courses. And he is an amazing young man. Um, and it was an honor to reunite with him and both of us worked hard to get all the materials together and, uh, had some prominent people 
agree to go to the prison to meet Curtis to realize that he deserved a second chance. And so it was in December of 2018 that Colorado Governor Hickenlooper granted him uh, clemency and commuted his life without parole sentence, uh, pretty much ended it beginning July 1st, 2019. And he has uh, got out of prison. He has done amazing. He's married. They own a house together. He's working. And um, it's a great story. Um, And unfortunately, you know, he should have been able to do that a lot sooner than spending 24 years in prison because he was definitely worth a second chance. He was a good person and is a good person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just real quick, I know at times you also tried death penalty cases. What was that like? You know, um, death penalty cases are, it takes the stress, the anxiety, the pressure to a whole different level. Uh, It's very uh, intense. Um, I think it, obviously, being a public defender and reading everything, I'm against the death penalty, all the studies, not only that it's, you know, uh, racially disparate, um, but it's emotional and mental toll on everyone involved is incredible. It's the victim's family, it's the prosecutors, it's the defense lawyers, if you're Uh, representing someone that is going to be killed, uh, it's an incredible amount of pressure. And luckily, I was uh, very lucky in the sense that the five cases that I had that were going to charge with the death penalty, I successfully negotiated with the prosecutor uh, and got them to agree to drop the death penalty. And so I was able then to try those cases without the death penalty being um, part of the punishment. And so it's absolutely good. And Colorado now has abolished the death penalty. Um, They've abolished the death penalty for juveniles. But the death penalty not only is just how horrible it is financially, just the mental toll on everyone involved, uh, including my understanding of victims uh, and their families, meaning the, the victims' families. Yeah. And in, in that scenario, I, I just don't think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's good for anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what advice, if there, you know, if you have any advice to give, what advice would you give other public defenders? Sure. I guess looking back now at my being a trial lawyer for 30 years and being a public defender for 12 years, you know, I always think of, you know, when you're sitting on an airplane and the announcement, you know, if, there's an emergency, be sure to put your oxygen mask on first before helping others. And unfortunately, if we wait until there is an emergency to put your oxygen mask on before helping others, it's too late. 
And so, you know, you can't wait for an emergency. You've got to take care of yourself, uh, self-care um, in the process. You have to absolutely have positive self-talk, exercise, meditate, um, whatever personal time for things that you enjoy. You have to make time for it. And as a uh, public defender, I never thought I had, you know, the opportunity to take that time because you, you're constantly working on all your cases. You didn't want to stop because you couldn't stop. But in hindsight, in order to be the best trial lawyer, attorney, public defender, uh, you absolutely have to take care of yourself. And so my advice to young public defenders or anyone in the criminal justice system is that you have to figure that out early. And if you need help, if you need somebody who's just going to, you know, be a, a coach or ensure that you take that time out for yourself. Uh, and I know it's very difficult for people with children uh, who have other family obligations, but that would be my advice. Thank take you. care of yourself first. Thank you so much. And and right now, how are, how's your stress level? How's your mental health right now? Well, um, it's so much better because when I've opened my own firm, I'm able to, I did that with a goal of having balance, balance in my life uh, to make sure I'm an avid pickleball player uh, and I enjoy golf and cycling. And, uh, and to have a personal life and then do the select cases and I can still do them just as well. Uh, so that really has been a key for my, my mental health, uh, sleeping a lot better and a lot happier, less anxiety. Good. That's very good to know. And thank you so much, Holland, for coming on today. Absolutely, Robin. I, I appreciate having the time to talk to you. No problem at all. You have a wonderful day. You too. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. That Again, that was trial lawyer Holland Hoskins. I am very grateful that she came on today. But again, this is Robin Black with It's All About Healing Podcast. Stay blessed.